Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And after we recorded our episode on Pocahontas last fall, listeners like Katrina and Ron wanted to hear more on one point in particular, and that was the shipwreck that stalled John Rolfe's arrival in Jamestown. Yeah, and the the shipwreck in itself is a pretty amazing story. We've got St. Elmo's fire and wild hogs and even the devil. (laughs) Um, But it's also a make-or-break moment in early American history because the passengers survived the wreck and they saved Jamestown. And because they saved Jamestown and send back all these amazing New World stories of their own, they boost English support for American colonization. So it's a really good story. So good, in fact, that Shakespeare wrote about it in The Tempest. So our wrecked ship was bound for Jamestown, so we're going to give you a little rundown and start there, start with the Virginia Company. So Jamestown was supposed to be a money-making operation for for the Virginia Company. (laughs) Obviously, if you're going to invest in something, you want it to have a return. And so in 1607, they sent folks there hoping to set up industries like silk manufacture, pitch and tar, soap ashes, Glass making, lumber, sassafras, really anything would do. Maybe they'd even find some gold. They just wanted to get some money out of it. But, of course, that doesn't happen. And in 1609, according to Sarah's outline, Jamestown is terrible. Uh, But it's true. It's built on this marshy land. There's lots of mosquitoes, no fresh water because the James River is only potable for part of the year. All of their crops are failing, and the settlers are warring with the Native Americans and with each other. So they have an investment of not only money, but people, too. I mean, you can't just abandon the people you've sent to live in the New World. So the Virginia Company pours all it has into the third supply relief mission, and that's going to be a nine-ship fleet headed up by the 240-ton merchant ship, the Sea Venture. And it's going to have 600 new settlers to go and revitalize Jamestown and a ton of supplies. And also really good leadership. Yeah, some big names on board. Yeah, and that's important because part of Jamestown's problems were coming from their, their poor leadership and all their infighting. So we're going to have Admiral Sir George Summers, who was a war hero. He's actually coming out of retirement for this very mission. Captain Christopher Newport, who's on his fourth voyage to the New World, which is pretty impressive. I mean, this is 1609. The first one was 1607. So very impressive. And Sir Thomas Gates, who's going to be the governor and actually has a decree from King James himself ceding the Crown's authority to the Virginia Company, which is, uh, it's kind of a stretch, but that's a little quasi-independence there back in 1609. So this relief mission leaves Plymouth Harbor on June 2nd, 1609, and things go well for most of the journey. They're almost there. When something terrible happens, and the night before St. James Day, Monday, July 24th, a terrible storm hits this ship, and the Sea Venture is separated from the others in the fleet. And the survivor, William Strakey, later writes, A dreadful storm and hideous began to blow from out the northeast, which swelling and roaring as it were by fits, some hours with more violence than others, at length did beat all light from heaven, which like an hell of darkness turned black upon us. So 
a scary scene here. Imagine being out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on your um, 17th century ship. And the ship is beaten by the storm. Strachey says again, prayers might well be in the heart and lips, but drowned in the outcries of the officers. Nothing heard that could give comfort, nothing seen that might encourage hope. And then the ship starts to break apart and take on water. The water is already five feet above the ballast, so they're sinking. So the crew rushes about with candles to try to plug all of the leaks, and they plug the leaks with anything they can find. His account even mentions them using slabs of beef. (laughs) Um, But they can't find that leak that's sinking the ship, and it's still filling up. So the governor organizes all of the men on the ship into three companies to bail water in shifts at three different points. So imagine um, three groups working round the clock in hour-long shifts, just bailing water and manning the pumps. And even the great men on the ship, like the admiral, like the governor, take their hour-long turns. Remember, they started this on Monday, and by Thursday, this is still going on, so it can't go on much longer. But the watch spots St. Elmo's fire, which was named by Mediterranean sailors and was considered a sign of salvation because it usually comes at the end of the storm. But the sea venture... (laughs) Yeah, they're not saved yet. By Friday morning, they're still sinking. They've been bailing water for days now, and they're getting completely exhausted. And it's clear that they won't make it through another night. And as Strachey said, they'll have to commit the ship to the mercy of the sea. But then, just miraculously, George Summers spots land and... The land is close enough that he can even see the trees swaying in the wind, but they're still not safe. The seafloor is rising so quickly underneath them that it's possible their ship is going to break up. You know, their rickety old ship will break before they can get close enough to the land. So Summers does some very impressive Blackbeard-style maneuvering and manages to steer hard and wedge the ship between two rocks about three-quarters of a mile off the island. And all 150 aboard, including the dog, make it ashore on longboats by nightfall. So great, right? You know, they're... They've been saved. They made it through the tempest. They're on land. Not so fast, Sarah. No, because they're actually in hell. They realize, (laughs) like they really think they're in hell. They're on the Devil's Islands, uh, which kind of reminds me of Lost, everybody. Sorry. And the Devil's Islands were discovered by Juan de Bermudas a century before, and they were named for the devil screams that the Spanish heard there. Uh, Fortunately, though... It's not hell. They realize pretty quickly that the devil's screams are really just some bird squawking. Some delicious birds, as they <laughs> soon discover. And they like eating their eggs as well. They're Bermuda patrols. Uh, but no natives or Europeans had lived on the island, but they find evidence of Spanish influence. Someone has been there, including feral hogs that probably escaped from capsized galleons. So They've got petrol, pork, and mulberries, cedarberries, and the prickly pear Yum. from the <laughs> land, and tons of fish and tortoises. So again, not really hell. Yeah, Devil's Island turns out to be a paradise. And they build structures, including a church. They thatch it with a palmetto roof and Maybe this is this is probably a legend, but they are supposed to have salvaged the ship's bell for their church, and they have funerals there for uh, 
John Rolfe, who is aboard, uh, his, his wife dies and their baby, who is born on the island, and named Bermuda, dies there. Um, they also celebrate a wedding, though, some baptisms, and they get to work building new ships. They're not going to just kick back and enjoy this pork-filled paradise that they've landed on. They're going to work on getting back to their mission. Right. So they salvage the rigging and iron bolts from their wreck, and they harvest cedar from the forests, as well as barrels of wax from wrecked Spanish ships that they find, and they use that to help caulk theirs. And Bermuda limestone acts as a ballast. There's only one shipwright, but he helped build the 30-ton Patience and the 80-ton Deliverance. Aptly named ships. And the nobles and the countrymen all work together on building these ships. It's, Very democratic. Yeah, it's kind of this feel-good story, um, at least at first glance. Admiral Summers is supposed to have labored from morning until night as duly as any workman, uh, which has some fun kind of old-timey spelling, too. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, but it's, it's not a perfect paradise here. Some people don't want to leave. Um, and they refuse to help build the ships. Others mutiny against the governor because, of course, his contract isn't uh, specifically allowing him to govern right. Bermuda. It's for Jamestown in Virginia. Um, and then some people are coveting <laughs> their their wealthier neighbors' goods that they managed to save from the ship somehow. Right. At least one man is executed. One or two were murdered, and two were left behind because they were hiding from punishment. But how bad would that be, really? I mean, for me, well, apparently really execution nice. bad. <laughs> <You> got <laughs> caught. And I guess, yeah, pork and petrol if you didn't. Yeah. Well, anyways, by May 10th, 1610, 10 months after they landed, 142 castaways leave for Jamestown. And they reach Chesapeake Bay after 10 days of sailing. And you'd think they're shipwreck survivors. They're coming to Jamestown. They'd probably expect, you know, a decent settlement there. They know it's not going to be amazing, but they'd expect something. Instead, they find a ghost town, ruined houses. The gates are hanging off their hinges. No one is in sight. They go into the church and ring the bell, and a few people trickle out of the fort. It turns out that only 60 of the 600 settlers of Jamestown are left. Right, because the winter of 1609-1610 was starving time, and we're arriving right after that. So let's talk a little bit about what was happening while our shipwrecked people were in Bermuda. So the survivors of the fleet, you know, the the rest of the fleet was separated from the sea venture. The survivors who don't sink managed to struggle on through the tempest to Jamestown, and they got there the previous August, which was later than they were supposed to get there, but but not too much later. They come with the really bad news that the sea venture was lost. Presumably everyone on board is dead. Well, and all of their leaders. All their leaders, yeah, the governor, the admiral. And this is devastating news for the colonists at Jamestown who were who are counting on all the supplies and the leadership and the new people coming in. Um, from there, some of the fleet returns to England and they carry on this bad news. So it's, it's also terrible stuff to hear for the investors of the Virginia company. Well, and some of them stay in Jamestown, but without, again, those strong leaders and the democratic example of Gates, a lot of them are simply too hoity-toity to work or they go off looking for gold instead of 
you know, harvesting crops or something helpful. Yeah. And other people in Jamestown just become consumed by the internal politics of the city. And they waste all their time trying their former governor, Governor John Smith, uh, for all these crimes and sending and packing for England instead of doing stuff like, you know, finishing the harvest and storing it all up for winter. When this isn't exactly a good time to be playing around, because, again, this is where... Powhatan is considering exterminating these very meddlesome settlers, and we're in the middle of the worst tidewater drought in 800 years. So there's absolutely no room for error, um, and they're making every conceivable error. But obviously, the winter doesn't go well. The people are reduced to eating the starch from their Elizabethan ruffs and bugs and horses, and eventually eating each other. And the Sea Venture survivors find the Jamestown settlers much worse off than they are themselves. And many of them are too weak to stand. Their well has collapsed, so they don't have fresh water anymore. And they're clearly on the brink of death. But fortunately, the Sea Venture rescue crew has lots of that yummy Bermudan food that they found, deliverance from the deliverance. And Gates is a very compelling leader, but even he, after a few days has come to the realization that this isn't going to work. Jamestown yeah. is done. They've got to get out of Jamestown. So they pack up the the two ships that were made in the in Bermuda and on June seventh, sixteen ten, everybody gets on board, head back to England, maybe by way of Newfoundland. But the Jamestown people are so ashamed of their failure, of this you know, it must be a horrible memory. If you're cannibals the winter before, you're probably pretty upset by um how things went. So let's set the city on fire. They want to just erase it from history. Gates says no. You know, maybe somebody else will come here eventually and it'll be of use to them. And the group sails, they're almost in open water when they run into an English fleet that's coming to save them, which is, if this were Burke and Wills, I think they'd miss each other probably. <laughs> and they wouldn't leave a note. But um, yeah, the new fleet has provisions to reestablish Jamestown. They have new people and they're saved. Although it's an important note that if the Jamestowners had had to rely on this fleet's arrival, they would have been dead by this yeah, point. they wouldn't have made it. it. It was the Bermudan ships that saved them. So, of course, this is a really fantastic story. And popular accounts start to come out back in England. Sylvester Jordan wrote Discovery of the Bermudas, otherwise called Isle of Devils, which may have been the first bestseller about colonial America. And William Strachey's account, which is the one we've been quoting for, was even more candid and intense. It was originally a letter, so, you know, it's got lots of juicy details in it. Um, Sarah, do you wonder if maybe this story would be good enough for a play? I I think it might be. (laughs) I think it's pretty inspirational. So I'm sure you know where we're going with this. It's right to Shakespeare and the writing of The Tempest. Alden Vaughn, a professor of history at Columbia, thinks that the wreck of the sea venture was unquestionably an inspiration for Shakespeare's writing of The Tempest, which is a romance about a terrible storm, a shipwreck, and a mysterious island. Some don't think, though, that that's the case, that Shakespeare writing about the New World was a, quote, fanciful conceit, but... I th- I'm going to go with, yes. We're going to lay down our points, at yes. least, for, for why we think it's pretty viable. 
So first, consider that North American exploration and settlement happened concurrently with Shakespeare's writing career. The Tempest was written in 1610 or 1611, which is the same year the accounts were published in England. Point one. And second, Shakespeare definitely knew some of the Virginia Company investors, maybe even Admiral Summers himself. William Strachey also, the guy who, who wrote one of the famous accounts, was a poet in London before going abroad. So uh, we're not sure Shakespeare knew him, but they may have run in the same circles. And uh, our third point is in the language. Look to the language. As, um, as English majors should. Well, <laughs> Always look to the language. And the language used to describe the storm in the play sometimes picks up directly from the Strachey and Jordan accounts, although the action is different. I think in the play, the nobles <laughs> hamper rather than help save the ship. And obviously, you know, Shakespeare drew from lots of different sources. Um, the Tempest probably has bits of Ovid's metamorphosis and the Aeneid in it, and also in the Tempest, the ship is leaving from North Africa, so there's a lot of Mediterranean scenes mixed in with the Bermuda stuff. But it seems pretty clear that this huge national event in 1610, you know, the survival of these lost men at sea, would would maybe have a little influence on Shakespeare. Or a lot. Or a lot. So the Tempest was first performed at Whitehall Palace, November 1st, 1611, for King James, and it's sometimes called Shakespeare's American play, and it's believed to be his last. But to sort of wrap this one up, we're going to go even broader than the sea venture being responsible for saving Jamestown and maybe inspiring a great work of literature. Um, investors liked Bermuda, so when these accounts... <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Katie and I both would like to vacation in Bermuda now. Um, but when these counts came back to England, you know, Strachey and Jordan, um, people realized Bermuda, not an Isle of Devils, actually a really nice place, maybe a good place to invest some money in. A jewel, in fact. Yeah, and it becomes the site of the first English parliament in the New World and a really important, uh, important stopping point on journeys to the New World and important just for uh, setting up other colonies, the islands become test farms for foods to grow on the mainland, and just some interesting <laughs> little a side notes. Leg. Yeah, they cast money that has a hog on one side and the sea venture on the other, which is the first English currency minted in the New World. And even today, Bermuda's flag has the image of a sinking ship and the motto, "Whichever way the fates should carry us." So this is why this story. Yeah. And, of course, the survivors of the sea venture are also really important. And listeners suggested that we record this story because of one of the survivors. But we're going to start with Gates, who is very important for the survival of Jamestown, the long-term survival of it. He's a strict leader, but he's successful. He builds this house of stone over the collapsed well, so that's a really great image of Jamestown's revival. When he makes his own hearth from that Bermuda limestone ballast. Yeah, and maybe at least partly because of him and partly because of the experience in Bermuda, people are a little bit less concerned about class distinctions because they work together to save the ship and to live together in Bermuda. You know, you got to think of that relatively, but still, it's something. 
And then we have our guy, Rolf, who doesn't just marry Pocahontas. He's more important than that. He figured in Virginia's first big export, and hint, it's not gold. It's tobacco. And seven years after Rolf's arrival, Virginia's tobacco exports were at 20,000 pounds. Twelve years after that, they were at one and a half million pounds a year. So this is clearly the the big point here. Rolf figures out that you can grow um, West Indies varieties of tobacco in Virginia, which is the kind that people back in Europe like, and they can make a ton of money. And not only someone like Rolf, but investors back in England. It's the real key to the financial success of Virginia. So really, a shipwreck led us to a success story. And we would like to end with a pretty cool quote that Sarah found. And this is from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Now would I give a thousand furlongs of sea for an acre of barren ground, long heath, brown furs, anything. The wills above be done, but I would fain die a dry death. And since we can't follow Shakespeare, we will go to listener mail and let y'all do it instead. So this is real mail from Hillary in Portland. She sent us a beautiful postcard of the Bahamas, um, and she's from the island, so we thought we would we would pick up on that theme for listener mail today. So she wrote that she wanted to thank us for helping me step up my Jeopardy game. Last night, I correctly guessed Lord Byron for the final Jeopardy clue, and I owe my success entirely to your podcast. He really does pop up everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we're, it's good to hear we're helping people step up their Jeopardy games, too. If you're not a big sender of mail, you can join our Facebook fan page or follow us on Twitter at Mist in History. And if you'd like to hear a little bit more about the scientific aspects of our podcast, this particular one, you can check out the article, What is St. Elmo's Fire? that Sarah edited on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.